Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Show Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Moon of the Turning Leaves by Wabgishik Rice. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I enjoy long walks, but not when they include being chased by white supremacist survivalists. Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and um, in the event of an apocalypse, I'm totally screwed. So please come help me. And across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, and I work at the Louis Riel Library, and I agree with Tyler, who said, there never was no normal when it comes to teenagers. And across the table from me is... I'm Susie Maloney. I am the current writer-in-residence, taking up residence at the Millennium Library. And I think that in the event of an apocalypse, I'm going to be running things. (laughs) (laughs) But in a nice way. That's good to know. (laughs) A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary we wouldn't do this without you. We'd love to hear from you. Hurry and send us a message before the power goes out permanently. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we dig in, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. And in particular, let's check in with our special guest. Welcome to the podcast, Susie. <laughs> thank you. Um, a check-in. Well, I'm fine, thank you. Should I tell a little bit about myself? Yeah. I mean, we've met you, but our listeners haven't yet, and they might not know all of the different stuff you've done. That's true. Yeah. My first question to you is, you are the writer-in-residence. Do they let you go home? No, I have to live here. <laughs> also, I have to remain celibate. I, I, I was worried about that. <laughs> yes, my husband's very upset. <laughs> But it's only until May. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. I'm happy to hear that. That's something to let people know is that I am only the writer-in-residence until the end of April. So if you've got mm-hmm. something to show me, better send it. Yeah. WPL.writerinres at gmail.com. So I am the writer-in-residence. There's a reason I'm here. I am a writer. I am the author of five works of fiction. One is a collection of short stories. I'm best known, I think, for supernatural fiction, but I actually write a lot more than that. I crossed the floor in a, about seven, eight years ago, and now I write film and television for the most part, but I still keep my finger in the fiction pies by writing lots and lots and lots and lots of short stories for anthologies. Can I talk about my latest? Because it's yes. really super fun. Please do. All right. So I am part of this amazing project through Acorn Press. It is called the Anthology. Anne, as in Anne of Green Gables. Uh-huh. So Acorn Press got writers from all over to write a story in the voice of Anne from their particular perspectives. And so mine is called, surprise, surprise, uh, Anne in the Bloody Book. (laughs) (laughs) Real shocker there. Uh, And it was so much fun. Uh, So that is going to drop in May, probably mid-May. Very, very excited about this. There's been already some buzz. It's got a fantastic cover, uh, you know, and it's all bosom friends and kindred spirits, and I can't <laughs> wait to... Also, my last film, my latest film, last film, I guess, we'll say that because I'm still in the middle of one, drops on, on Tubi March 15th. So if you've got Tubi, you subscribe to Tubi, uh, you'll be able to see it. It's called Romy. It was directed by Robert Cuffley, and it's my third film. Excellent. I wrote it. Not in it or anything. Sure. Yeah, just just the writing part. Yeah, that, just, yeah. the writing. <laughs> just the screams. I wrote the screams. Mm-hmm. We will pay special attention to the screams. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're very happy you agreed to come on the podcast because we always. It's like, in the have- contract. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Do you guys got anything you want to update on? 
I do. I want to say that I'm basically a tyromancer now. Last month, my word nerd was tyromancy, which is the art of fortune telling by cheese. And after the episode, Trevor texted Dennis and I a picture of his morning cheese, yeah, I it was, think. It was, a, it was a, a marble cheddar. Okay. And what did you say about it? Well, are... I, I just sent it out. I, I, it's a, just a little joke. And I said something like, oh, I wonder what the cheese will tell us about today. Mm-hmm. And just meant it's a little little joke. And then something quite amazing happened. Well, I saw a cat in the cheese and I saved the image and I drew on it to show where the cat was. And I sent it back to them. And I said, oh, maybe this fortune is for Dennis, who has been talking about um, getting a new cat since his other cat passed. And... Not long after, you did get a new cat. Yes. So if you were listening last time, I mentioned how 2023 started with the loss of my cat. So this year, we did adopt a cat named Cooper. And he's adorable, and he loves purrs, and he got underfoot, and I've got a pulled hamstring right now because I fell trying not to step on him. (laughs) And he sleeps in bed with me, and he snores. Uh, But he is adorable. So somehow I feel like maybe my cheese was to blame for for the your, snoring you, for your for your injury because <laughs> oh. if it wasn't for the cheese Toby wouldn't have seen the image he may not have been sort of pushed towards getting a cat that you tripped over and now here we are okay i'm blaming you <laughs> yeah really I'll, I'll send you my physiotherapy bill. does nobody want to ask about morning cheese is there, <laughs> is this, no one that's, noticed that just me that's, that's the most normal thing about trevor <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's nothing more natural in the world than a bit of morning cheese. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna have to We're not going to question that phrase at all. At all. Well, tyromancy is now my side hustle, so hit me up if yeah. you all if right. you want some fortunes told. So you need to provide the cheese. I think, I think feta would be good because you could kind of crumble it. Uh-huh. And then or kind blue, because it. it has the veins. The veins, yeah. 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 Blue yeah. cheese, because you could smell the future. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. And since we're talking up our past nerd words, uh, my nerd word last time was inshittification. And I think probably because I mentioned it, Cory Doctorow himself is coming to Winnipeg on Tuesday, March 26th, between 2 and 3. Very specific. Yeah. <laughs> he lands it too. <laughs> well, he'll, he'll be here anyway. Um, and this is, uh, I'm actually not sure where, I think it's the University of Winnipeg. But anyways, you can search for it online. I'll put a link to the registration thing I found. So you can go listen to him talk about the nerd word. Are you going to go? Probably not. I am. I think I'm probably working at that time. What day is that? Is that a, what's the date? Tuesday, March 26th. Tuesday in the afternoon? Yeah. Hmm. I'm going anyway. Yeah. So we have to, I guess, you know, take extra care with our nerd words because we don't know what kind of power they have in the world. That is very true. Or maybe it's this coven that I've joined. (laughs) It could be indeed. I can't wait to hear what you're... I don't don't feel comfortable holding hands with you guys anymore. (laughs) I feel like we should let go. (laughs) Yeah, maybe the table will stop floating then. Blow out that candle. (laughs) Okay, with with that out of the way, let's go into the main body of the podcast. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. Okay. Wabgesheg Rice. Uh, He was born on April 22nd, 1979, and he is from Wasaxine First Nation, which is near Parry Sound in Ontario. In grade school, he was an avid reader and writer, but was unsure what he wanted to do with his life. His aunt introduced him to Indigenous authors like Richard Wagamese and Lee Maracle. In his last year of high school, he applied to go abroad for a year and was selected to go to Germany. The newspaper editor of the Anishinaabek News heard about this and asked if he'd want to write about his experiences being an Indigenous youth in a European country, and this inspired him to go to journalism school. He graduated from the journalism program at Toronto Metropolitan University in 2002. He spent most of his journalism career with CBC as a video journalist and radio host, including working for the CBC here in Winnipeg with the likes of fellow Indigenous journalists Sheila North and Wab Canoe. He published Midnight Sweat Lodge, a short story collection in 2011. Uh, This book was inspired by his experiences growing up in an Anishinaabe community and was worked on over the course of many, many years. When he was living here in Winnipeg, he pitched it to Thetis Books, who offered him a contract and paired him up with our good pal Jordan Wheeler, uh, who helped him him write it. Yeah. 
His debut novel, Legacy, was published in 2014. His second novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow, was published in 2018 and was a national bestseller and received a lot of critical acclaim. It also experienced a resurgence in popularity due to the pandemic. Thanks to the book's popularity, he was able to leave his job at the CBC in 2020 to focus on his writing full time. He had not intended to write a sequel to Crusted Snow, but the fans demanded one, and he acquiesced, publishing Moon of the Turning Leaves in 2023. Future writing plans for Rice include children's literature and another novel that is more lighthearted and humorous, paying tribute to the resilience of Indigenous joy. He lives in Nisuakamok, also known as Sudbury, with his wife and three children. He has a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is a self-proclaimed metalhead, and enjoys a good club sandwich. So today we are going to be discussing the, his novel, Moon of the Turning Leaves. But I think we can also think of this book in terms of the first book that he wrote, Moon of the Crusted Snow. So I won't summarize, spend a lot of time on the first book, but all we need to know really for, for the second book is that it takes place in a, a remote indigenous community in northern Ontario where all of a sudden the power goes out. And as the winter moves on, things get worse and worse, and it's unclear exactly what's happening down south. Strangers show up at the community, and, and things kind of go bad. And then at the end of that novel, the survivors decide to relocate and start a new community a little further away. So we pick up the story 12 years later, since the lights went out, and we reconnect with this community in northern Ontario. And they realize, the community leaders, that change is necessary. The fish are less plentiful in their lake. The trap lines are all getting trapped out. So the elders decide that their best hope of survival is to relocate to their ancestral lands along Georgian Bay and Lake Huron to the south, where the hope of better conditions lie. So the community sends a six-person scouting party. It's led by Evan Whitesky, and the others are Nungons, his daughter and an excellent hunter, Tyler, who is Evan's best friend, Cal and Amber. Cal sort of just volunteers. He's the first to volunteer, and Amber's, his, they're, they're inseparable. Amber's his kind of his girlfriend, and she has uh, knowledge of traditional medicine. And then the last one to join the group is J.C., James Charles. He's the oldest member of the group, and he's sort of the resident elder navigator. So the whole plan would be that this expedition there and back would take roughly two months, covering about 1,000 kilometers return if everything went well. The group would return and report their findings before harvest, so the rest of the novel is made up of the, we follow the six walkers as they make their way south into unfamiliar lands as they investigate the feasibility of relocating their community. The balance of the novel traces the group's journey and the unexpected signs of hope and instances of unbridled evil. Good summary. Thanks. I, I think the last time I went too far, I, yeah. I said everything and then you're like, whoa, we should put a spoiler alert. So I thought I just, you know, just, just oh, leave it there. Just, you know, we are going to be discussing spoilers. Oh, so for sure. Yeah. Spoiler. Oh, yeah. Oh, we can we, talk. Yeah. yeah nothing's off the table. But I feel yeah. like to, to, to explain everything right at the get go. This is a book recommendation podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you read this, you'll love the ending. Here it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's, it's a book club podcast. That's right. Yeah. It's so a book club. Yeah. We, we let people know what we're reading ahead of time so yeah. they have a chance. Okay, so it's on them. But yeah. sometimes, exactly. yeah. uh, back in the day uh, before I was on the podcast, I would listen to it and sometimes I'd want to read a book after hearing the discussion. Uh, so sometimes I think people listen and get a feel for whether they'll like it. I agree. Yeah. At least we hope so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to go talk about the book, but I'm going to mention too that there are a lot of words in Anishinaabe Moan in this book and uh, names, and we are going to try our best to pronounce them accurately. We did watch a video that Wabgishik kindly uploaded to YouTube that talks about the pronunciation of the language and specifically the names of many of the characters. And I did watch it, and all of us watched them, but. I am bad with sounds, and I'm going to mess them up some, so please be kind as we try to pronounce correctly. That's um, right. So how did you guys find the book? I got it at McNally Robinson. Oh, find the book, <laughs> like read it. Yes, but we always leave that space book. for that joke. <laughs> uh, it's a dad joke. Did you, you went to the book launch, didn't you, or no, you didn't? Yeah. No, I missed the oh, launch. Okay. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that was COVID season at oh, my house. Right, right. <laughs> yes, I missed some days at the library too. Oh, yeah. Still people mad at me. Uh, it's a great book. I was an early adopter and a huge fan of Moon and Crested Snow. And I'm, I'm absolutely a sucker for anything that is apocalyptic or dystopian. I, I feel like it's kind of a blueprint for us to study because it's all a coming. 
And uh, so, yeah, Moon on Crested Snow uh, surprised me, thrilled me, delighted me, and couldn't wait for Moon of the Turning Leaves. One of the things that he said in an interview was, or maybe it was even on that upload to YouTube, was that the language is, in an English language book, it's a wonderful kind of way to introduce to people a language that is having a revival. And it's... Anishnabenwin, is that how you say it? Anishnabenwin? Bemoen? Is there an M? I don't know. I did try to write them out phonetically and figure out how to say them, but yeah, and and we should, of course, try very hard to say them correctly because they can say Susie and Trevor and Toby. So we should try to speak their language as well. Um, Obviously, you have a very hard time with Dennis. That's a very hard... Dairis. One more time. Dairis. Dairis. Close enough. Dairis. Just don't call me late for dinner. Oh, another dad joke. That's two. The dad joke podcast all of a sudden. Yes. So, yes, but the thing that is so key to both books is the characters. And you do get to follow some of them from the first community into what becomes uh, two more communities. And, you know, that kind of consistency because you fall in love with characters. And that's the, I think, the beauty of a sequel is that you get to see what happened. And uh, Nungos, 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 yeah. um, she's the young girl. She's just a little wee girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like what, like is she just fourteen or something? Three in the first and now one. she's fourteen, yeah. and yeah. she's you know a skilled archer, and that's how she's hunting, which is brilliant because the world is running out of bullets, mm-hmm. and you know she's very accomplished. She grew up in you could say in a traditional way, and has no concept of what the world was before the great outing of power. And uh, it's fun to watch her go through the parts of the city that are now crumbling and falling apart and seeing them. They're described to us in a sense that we sort of know what these buildings are. They're gas stations. And I like that one point where he says the restaurant recognized by its one large letter and you're like, McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. It's one large letter. Yeah. He has a gift for description where he doesn't have to say everything, but you can figure it out. It's- yeah. Nicely done. Yeah. And I, I, similar, like I, I had read Moon of the Crested Snow. Um, actually, I think it was on Toby's recommendation, a previous podcast when we were talking about Eden Robinson. And that was one of your tell me about another books mm-hmm. I might like books. I read a lot of post-apocalyptic books. And I just love the, the take on this one where it was like for the indigenous characters, the, this is nothing new. Their apocalypse has already happened 500 years ago. So it's, the rest of the world just kind of catching up. And they're well suited, so to speak, to to pivot. Remember that word we use at the beginning of the pandemic to a different life because they have the tools and the and the knowledge and the teachings. So I kind of love that part of it. And then I yeah, picked up the second one and read it because that was Susie's suggestion for this podcast. And uh Again, we got to see the next sort of chapter. And I was wondering about that, whether it was intended as a sequel or not. The way that it's written, kind of spoilers at the end, we're not going to get a third one, I don't think. Oh, uh, we don't need one yet. No, 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 exactly. <laughs> but but it, so it's kind of an interesting, I don't know what you call that. It's not a trilogy. What do you call it when there's two books? Duology. duology. <laughs> I mean, it might just be a duology. But I guess I was thinking that this was going to be the second book of a trilogy. And so I was thinking, okay, this is going to end on a cliffhanger. You know, it's, this is going to be like The Empire Strikes Back or, or The Two Towers. But it kind of resolves in kind of a, a satisfying way. So he I probably know. doesn't want to write another one. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. He might like to move on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I was, I'm wondering in his thought process, like whether at what point where he decided, okay, no, that's this is good. You know, like I, it felt like it was about to end on a cliffhanger. And then it just mm-hmm. kind of was like the afterward part was kind of like, oh, okay. But I'm, I'm saying, maybe I'm saying too much. Am I saying too much? Maybe I'm saying too much. No, we, we can talk you freely. Yeah. Trevor. Talk freely. <laughs> so if so. someone doesn't want to hear spoilers, they're not listening to spoilers us. Spoilers alert. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we, that's, that's pretty much my first take on it. I'm going to be a little critical. I really, really liked Moon of the Crusted Snow. It was slow, but there was like a lot of tension and a lot at stake. This one was so slow. I found just so many descriptions of everything. The forest, the roads, the waterways, the dilapidated building, 
there was less urgency. It was it was quieter, which isn't a bad thing. And then like the horror elements that I enjoyed from the first book, even though I don't read horror, were totally absent from this book. So I did enjoy it. It just it wasn't what I was expecting. I, I'm going to have to agree with you there. There were outside of we have to find a new place to hunt. There were no stakes. <laughs> I mean, there were pockets of stakes, but they were quickly dispatched. No one was really at risk. It never felt like that. We lost one character, but we didn't get to know them very well. And so I'm not going to give away any endings. I feel bad to do that. <laughs> so I'll let you guys spoil all your life. Yeah, try not to scare what us as we do. But <laughs> that's okay. I had an English teacher in high school who would have gone on at great lengths that a character named JC sacrificed oh. himself for a group. <laughs> I noticed that too. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I'm, I'm almost 100% certain that that was not uh, the author's intention. I think it was actually. You, th- you think yeah. there was a Christian yeah, reference were, in there? Well, I just think there were some very deliberately placed things like that. Like I'm also thinking of... I don't know if you recall this moment when they go back to the old res and they dig up the guns and they're wrapped in a bay blanket. Like just like little, little things like that where I feel like he's just, he's like kind of flexing a bit, Mm -hmm. you know? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. So I, I think it's deliberate. I think okay. that, yeah, that's, uh, then, that's good call. Then, uh, my catch. high school English teacher can just go to town on that one. Because <laughs> <laughs> he would have. He, <laughs> he was a good teacher, but he really enjoyed those types of references. I had not read Bob Gishuk Rice before, so I had to read both books this month. I did enjoy Crusted Snow quite a bit. There was a really good building of tension in that one, and you knew something had to happen, and you were just waiting for it. I found the end a little sudden. Uh, I found that there were maybe other ways he could have developed it more fully. It was it was a short, it was like a sketch, a post-apocalyptic sketch. And I thought it was really well done, but I could see potential for more. And then in, in Turning Leaves, yeah, it was, it was a different pace. I don't know, I felt like we learned a lot about Evan in the first book. And I feel like we didn't really get as much Evan in this one because the focus was on Nangong's. Um, but we didn't get much about her either. We didn't get hopes, dreams, falling in love. So 14-year-old girl. I felt that we got more of her, though, How is she than dealing him. with her period? I'm curious well, about that, right? too. Also, how is Amber not ending up pregnant? Right? <laughs> well, she knows all those medicines. <laughs> well, it could be. There, there, yeah, there are some... Whenever you look at a novel like this, there's always practical things that... You know, like, I'm surprised that so many of the buildings deteriorated that fast mm-hmm. and the highways were breaking up that quickly. Yeah, 12 years. You know? but, but I bet um, it would. Yeah. Plants, the force of the earth mm-hmm. changing without having constant pressure of the cars and trucks on them. and True, but they have a lot to work through before they're breaking up the road to that. Well, I mean, you see those little weeds know. working their way up through cracks in the sidewalk. I mean, nature yeah. is powerful. It is, yeah. And just what the highways, you're a little farther separated from it, usually. It's to my quote Michael impression. Crichton, yeah. life finds a way. Yes. <laughs> I think the thing I enjoy most about reading Wabgishik Rice's writing is that he has a real gift for description of moments. He sets scenes so beautifully, like casual, everyday scenes. You just They flow nicely. I really like the characters. I mean, you know, the... Evan's family is a really strong family, and his community was a really good community. I like to read stories about nice people. (laughs) This book is definitely about nice people. A lot of nice people. There's quite a lot of contrast between the nice people and the uh, bad people. Yeah, until they meet the the white supremacist survivalist group, uh, which is like the nastiest people you can imagine. Two Uh, groups of them. Oh, it was the same group, right? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. just one massive group. Uh, And that's where it really kind of joined the post-apocalyptic stories that I'm familiar with, with like The Walking Dead and stuff like that, where you have these groups that are just violent and aggressive and will take and will uh, hurt whoever they want and they're just thriving in that power gap and being like that as opposed to communities like Evans where it's all about let's get together and work together and build ourselves up and try to make sure we can make it through the winter and if someone comes along we have hospitality and we help people along the way while also trying to keep ourselves safe you know I think that represents those two communities fairly accurately. You know, I think that colonists would absolutely just recolonize 
Whereas I, I do think that there's more of a spirit of community and give and take in indigenous communities, at least the indigenous communities that I've ever had anything to do with. It seems like there's more all for one, one for all. I wanted to point out, too, you were talking about moon encrusted snow, Trevor. The interesting thing about what you said, that they were prepared Actually, about half of them were prepared, and the other half had kind of ignored the old ways and hadn't learned the traditions and weren't hunting and fishing before that and had to either come on board. And, of course, some of them did not. Some of them partied like it was 1999, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. like all the nines. So that that created such great tension mm-hmm. and such stakes, right? Like that yeah. really made that book sing. And so there, that is missing from Moon of Turning Leaves. I mean, they are trying to save the community for, like, future generations, so it's, yeah, it's, a it's big, looking further ahead. Yeah, it's maybe, maybe too big an ask for us to... There was no immediate stakes. No, no. They were doing great. Till those well, nasty white supremacists. Came. No, they were doing okay though. But they were they had fewer moose and fewer deer, and the like. The fish were smaller and not as plentiful. That was a great illusion there at the beginning, where they basically said, "Yeah, you know, our communities in the past they used to move. They were nomadic, and this is why they wouldn't want to overfish and overhunt an area." And then it's like we're we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to go back to that tradition as well. Otherwise, we're going to run out of food here. So, yeah, another callback to tradition and why it made sense for their communities before and why it was making sense again. Yeah, no, for sure. I just felt like the stakes are everybody's on a diet, which doesn't seem like <laughs> super, super high stakes, yeah. right? Like it, yeah. But, it, I mean, it's a pleasure to read. Yeah, and, I mean, they didn't have to move as far as they did. That was also part of, like, reclaiming their past. Like, our people used to be here in this area, and we were pushed out of here and pushed to a reserve where nobody expected us to survive. And we did survive, but like, now might be a good time to go back there because it was pretty good back there. I uh, have to say, uh, so I used to live in northern Ontario. I spent 10 years in northern Ontario, and I lived on Manitoulin Island, and th- that's where they settle. That's, hmm. I, I'm absolutely certain that he's talking about Manitoulin Island because he's in Sudbury. Hmm. Sudbury, the island is, you know, an hour from Sudbury, so... Great place to end the world. We shall all meet there. Let's just all meet there. You know, partway through the book, the scouting party stumbles across a community, Suswin, the nest that mm-hmm. was started by a couple of women at first, Linda and Melissa, and then it was started as a language and culture camp before the lights went out. And it's kind of evolved into a safe place. Into a, What did you guys think of that scene or description of that community? Would, uh, that sounded like a like a perfect place to set up. Why'd they leave? I would have stayed. It couldn't support them all. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was worried because I know how sometimes stories go that it would have been destroyed. You know, Mm -hmm. I kept thinking like, oh, here's this perfect little safe haven and, you know, the white supremacists are going to find it. Doesn't sound like they did. They found one though. They found the other. Yes, that's right. The one that had the little um, windmill and... The little children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think that basically sets up what the world is going to be like in this world is that whatever communities there are, there will also be this large violent community that is trying to take you over and will be and there will be conflict, mm-hmm. which is one I think kind of universal from any post-apocalyptic story is that you just can't escape the conflict. People always end up fighting. Well, as long as the aggressors exist, you yeah. know, like if the aggressors were the only ones making war, you know, the Nujang's community was not Nguyen's. Yeah. There was that one character, uh, the red curly hair guy. Shabdis. Shabdis, yes. Yeah, Shabdis. And uh, he had been with that group to survive because, you know, he ran into them and it's like at a certain point you're like, yep, I'm with you guys because you don't want to get shot and you still want to survive. So a lot of people could be drawn into those groups basically out of that kind of need to survive. There's always good people in the world. There's always people in the world who will do harm. I think most of these stories end up saying something like that. Like, you're always going to have to apparently, struggle. Yeah, apparently at the end of the world, we just divide into the two groups. Yeah. Yeah, no middle ground, huh? <laughs> it's like, a, like there's not like just a community of slackers, <laughs> community well, of jocks. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, there's the smokers. Yeah. Well, there was the, the whole hippie community. Uh, but the thing is, you know, they were a hippie community. They weren't looking out for being invaded because they thought, why would you do that? And then someone came along and did. Yeah, that's so. what would happen to hippies too. 
they'd yeah. forget that it was <laughs> there was bad people. I figure why struggle for resources when we've all got the same stuff now and there's plenty around for everybody. But no, there's still always someone who would rather take it. I had also wished that we had spent just a wee bit more time showing the collapse of society. Mm -hmm. Just the, you know, I don't understand why the young girl didn't want to go into those buildings or learn something about why they even existed. And so I felt like that was a wee bit of a disappointment because it was the best part of Planet of the Apes (laughs) when they went into the Forbidden Zone and found the doll. Right. I wanted them to find it all or something. Yeah. Well, they go into that one house, the brick house, and they find the, there's a skeleton in there. And that's about it, I think. Yeah, but I want to yeah. find a coffee maker and, yeah. you know, stuff that could be cool and could yeah. be repurposed or something. Yeah. And they, they went over like, it was like almost like a city council building where there was the uh-huh. map on the wall. I thought there could have been maybe more. We're not gave, really shown. No. He gave a lot more. of little hints of things, you yeah. know, like. He suggested that the power went out because of northern lights. So, you know, solar flare activity taking out the power grid to an extent that it couldn't be recovered. But he doesn't go into any details. He just kind of suggests, oh, it happened after a really big northern lights. So that's just kind of a hint. Maybe that's what happened. And then they're like, these areas are the dead zones. And it's like, okay, well, that's along southern Ontario. There's some nuclear power plants down there. You know, maybe a nuke plant wasn't being maintained anymore because the power was all out and uh, radiation everywhere. Yeah, possibly, but he only hints at that because that's the information that the survivors have because no one knows anything because when the power went out, there's no radio, there's no phone lines. There was that movie on Netflix not long ago. I forget the title now. Something... Who was in it? Nobody I recognized, but it was about the, uh, like all of a sudden things start going terribly, terribly wrong and the power grid's going out and the machines are attacking people. The crown. There's (laughs) there's a scene where a bunch of Teslas are crashing into each other on the highway. And the thing about the movie was. That had, um, that had Julia Roberts in it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Julia Roberts. (laughs) Oh yeah. Her. (laughs) I'm not Uh, good with names and faces. Uh, something at the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Or the end of time or. But the thing about that story was that uh, the characters didn't know what was going on. And that was part of what was unsettling and uh, uncomfortable in the movie was that you don't know. And in this book series, none of our characters know. They have no clue what happened, just that the power went out. And that's part of kind of, I guess, the uncertainty you would live under in that circumstance because... It's not like you're going to find a book where someone details everything that happened. I See, I really loved that part of it that we yeah. didn't know. I was uh, toying with a book a few years ago where a woman was going out of town to visit her grandmother, like in a farmhouse, and same thing, something happened, and there was a perimeter around the town and nobody could get out. And I loved this idea that nobody knew, and there was no real way to find out. I think that's incredibly frightening. Yes. Until it isn't, I guess, until it becomes commonplace in every day, like it does in Moon of Turning Leaves. But when the strangers show up in um, Moon on Crusted Snow, that's really scary. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. do they, are they bringing news? Are they bringing guns? Are they going to take or are they going to leave? <laughs> yeah. And because you don't know, you don't know how guarded you should be. Like, I mean, if the power is going to come back on next week, then... You don't have to panic that much. Just ride it out for a little bit. But if it ain't coming back, then you've got to change your entire way of life. And because you don't know, how do you handle it? People in uncertainty is when you get, I guess, the biggest crucible test of the character. Because since they don't know, they have to go on principles. I guess that's what happens with Jabdis too, right? Like they don't know if they can trust him. They Mm -hmm. don't know, is, is he one of us or is he one of them? Yeah, because even in his own stories, he talks about how he makes up stories with other people. Like he says, Mm -hmm. you know, I give a different name. You know, they know me as O'Brien or whatever. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, how much is he telling the truth to them? And yeah. And we never know. Again, we never find out. Well, it turns out to be pretty trustworthy, though. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I guess he he dies before. Well, the thing is, the way he died, though, he died saying, yeah, these are my people. Yeah. That's true. And uh, I think that was the only confirmation he could possibly have given. It's yeah. like, yeah, no, these are my people. You're pointing a gun at me, but these are my people. And he got shot for it. Yeah. Oops. And that's no, he didn't. I made that up. 
<laughs> Susie, you're spoiling the story. Oh, you said you wouldn't do that. <laughs> and I'm leaving that in. I'm not editing it. <laughs> Susie Maloney. Write me letters. Spoiler story. W- sorry, sorry, spoiler. WPL. <laughs> Writerinres at gmail.com. But only till May. Only till May. After that, it's the next writer in Res' problem. That's right. That's their problem. Yes. Evan also gets shot. Mm. Mm. I had to do it. Had to do Darn. It. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they find the island. Yeah, but Evan gets shot in both books, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. That is true. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 yeah, he says, oh, I can't believe this happened again. <laughs> Darn. Yeah. Man, I really, did, I really didn't know if he was going to survive that second one. <laughs> I was holding out it hope. It seems like he is going to, you know? Like I, know. They, I feel he like it died, you guys. I know, but I know. it makes it... Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I mean, no, he doesn't. <laughs> but didn't you feel for, like, before he yeah. died that he actually had a chance? Yeah, it really feels like bad he's, he's going right. to make it. Yeah, the worst thing that happens oh, oh. is they see a bear. Well, JC. Oh, JC died. Yeah, well. that was pretty... Who was he? Yeah, who was that guy? <laughs> yeah, he was a lord. He was an elder. He also, the, their the moment the moment that his leg broke, I was like, "Oh crap!" That's always a like, yeah. and I was like, "Are they going to leave someone with him while the rest of the group goes?" And that's going to shoot him like a dog, well, right in the street. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and you know they wouldn't do that. No, no, well, you didn't know that. Well, no, I mean, you don't know. You can say when the leg breaks, right? That's like, okay, this is really going to derail them. Yeah. They can't drag him. No, there was no way to transport him through that terrain, and there was no way to get him back without the whole group going back, and that would have taken a long time. And if they just waited for him to heal, there's no guarantee that he would have been able to walk well after. So it was this huge problem. And then, yeah, he made the decision for everybody else, which is a noble act. They could have left him a book or something, though. He didn't even have a book to read. Well, well didn't, they didn't get to that. He didn't get to that. No, I guess he... <laughs> he yeah. made his decision before they could even... Uh, get him a book. Yeah. <laughs> he was terrified I'd be bored. They could have gone back to that town. Had they gone through the town no, yet? No, not yet. They hadn't even found the town. No. They could have found a library. That wouldn't have been a good place to rest. <laughs> no, as it turns out. Yeah. Oh, by the way, dear reader, if, if the apocalypse happens and everything's going down, grab some library books on gardening and hunting and mm-hmm. shelter, uh, like camping books, before everything falls apart. Yeah. And, and anything people... by Susie Maloney. <laughs> and anything by Susie Maloney. Can and stay I, off, I, and I stay off because, the roads. Can I say because you're going to need Tinder? And... <laughs> oh, oh, God. I about that oh, one, just like Evan getting shot twice. Oh, I'm... I'm kidding. The first thing you do is you grab the Daniel Steele and the James Patterson, and those are your Tinder, and you won't run out for Absolutely. a while. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Or some really hot romances, because they'll <laughs> burn really well. Paperback. Yeah. But don't get the DVD players, because you won't be able to watch them. Like, just get Batteries. the books. Batteries. Batteries. Generators. And can't you get electricity from a potato? Just oh, get yeah. A super yeah. big potato. I've seen, I've seen we it We have done. kits that you can... That's like, right. Do you have to bake the potato first? No. Oh, no. No. But no, it's going to no. be so hot at the end of the world. <laughs> They'll bake anyway. Yeah. I think I'd rather eat the potato anyway. Well, after you've watched, yeah. you know, something with Julia Roberts in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do we have any other topics we want to touch on in this book before we move on to the next segment of our show? You know, I'm always hoping for in, uh, and this relates actually to what I said before about having, you know, the contrast between the old world and the new world. I'm always hoping that authors will tell us how to do something, that it'll be, there'll be a practical side to it. I don't know if anybody read the book Ghost Wall. It's about, uh, and I can't remember the writer's name. I'm so sorry. It's a tiny book. It's about a family that goes on one of these retreats where they pretend to be a medieval family. And so they have a teenage daughter that they bring with them, and you can just imagine how much she loves that trip. (laughs) And, uh, but the father knows how to do all this stuff, you know, cook with rocks. And so I was always kind of hoping that there would be some tips for living in the wilderness, which I would just love. Yeah, it's like uh, Andy Weir's The Martian, right? If you're ever Mm -hmm. stuck on Mars, it's pretty much a manual on how to to survive, right? right? How to grow your own food out of your own poop. That's right. So if you do um, get to a library, perhaps that is the one movie that you can use your potatoes to power to watch Mm -hmm. is because you can make food from poop. Yes. 
Usually it's the other way around. Uh, and usually not human poop, because human poop isn't nearly as good as other animals. Yeah, but that's all he had. Oh, he was on Mars. Yeah, he only had his own. Yeah, that, that reminds <laughs> me of Matt the, Damon. Yeah, Matt Damon's poop is a highly... It's high quality. <laughs> there's lots of nutrients. It's a better quality poop than is. the rest of us. Yeah. He did win an Oscar. But this, yeah. this did just remind poop. me of the one thing in this book that I thought, you know, after all this happened, what happened to the farms? Like, there's a lot of farms across uh, North America. There's animals. There's there's cows and pigs and they were probably sheep all and slaughtered chickens. for food in the By first then, yeah, like years. six months. Well, Zabadiz well, worked on a farm for a while. Remember part of his story when oh, he, he, yeah. he was a pickup or he was true, a, true. a long distance trucker, and then he spent like six years at a commune yeah. or whatever. But I would think that would be the thing to do: go to the farms and uh, like manage the animals because you're going to need them. Make sure some farmers survive. Well, and, it, yeah. and for all we know, maybe they are, right? Because we have a very narrow ribbon of knowledge, right? Yes. We, we, we have the community that's lived isolated for 10, 12 years, and then they've, they've kind of walked several hundred kilometers. But we, there could be very fully functioning farms. Yeah. Well, they were growing stuff because they had berries and, and uh, Linda's place had lots of produce. Yeah. Right? yeah. And tomatoes and... I realize modern farming wouldn't work because it relies so much on uh, heavy equipment and lots and lots of chemical fertilizer and things that you wouldn't be able to maintain when all the power went out. But there's still a lot of knowledge and there would still be all those animals that I know you'd have to eat a bunch of them at the beginning. But, you know, you can raise chickens. They don't take up that much food relative to like a cow. And there's lots more than just chickens that you can eat, right? You can eat yeah. ducks. And, but that's I, I think that that's not that particular community's menu, No, right? no. Yeah. And you're right. We only see a very thin slice of things. But that's the thing that occurred to me later is like, man, I wonder how the farms are doing. Anyway, um, any other final comments on the book? I was just thinking, wouldn't that suck if like all the rest of North America was doing just fine and they were just living <laughs> in this narrow band of, you know, uh, desolation. And they found out. Yeah. They found like out the village. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, wait a second, there's an airplane or whatever. You like know? over in Thunder Bay, everything's, everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. Get closer and closer to the border and your phone rings. <laughs> Where, why didn't you guys come for us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would have been something. Yeah. Maybe the third book. Yeah. That's, that's the third book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Europe is like, oh, we didn't even miss you guys. Uh, <laughs> tourists are just arriving. Yeah. <laughs> Manitoulin Island had a lot of tourists, by the way. Mm. It's essentially a tourist place. Mm. It is North America's largest freshwater island. It actually mm. might be the world's largest freshwater island. Mm. Oh, Ten years I lived there. Mm. It's beautiful. Absolutely stunning. Lots of tourists, though. Population triples in the summer. Mm. Yeah. But it's on the water, so you can kind of avoid them. Okay. Well, I think I can say we probably all recommend this. What do you recommend the book? Absolutely. I recommend both books. Both books. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for sure. Eh, Toby? I, for, uh, first one for sure. This one, meh. Yeah. I will say the first one, definitely worth a read. Second one, if you really like the world and the characters and you want to see what else they do, Yeah. But it's uh, the first book is stronger. The second book has some interesting ideas, just not as strong as the first book. That's not a knock on the author. It's just it's hard to follow up a really good book yeah. with another really good book right away. Yeah. Like I think if you read the first book, you'll want to read the second book. Yeah. Yeah. You'll want to read anything he's written. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's yeah. say his name again. Wabgeshag Race. There we go. Wabgeshag. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? Who's got a good book? I do. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, it's not. It's not related, and it's an American book, but it's called *The Reformatory* by Tanana Reeve Du. Tanana Reeve is, uh, you know, one of my people. She writes supernatural, and this is a magical realism book. And it's got a wonderful backstory. It is based on the experience of, I believe it's her grandfather at a notorious reformatory, I believe in Georgia. She's a black writer. So her, her grandfather was a black child who was sent, and oftentimes they were sent for incredibly petty reasons to these reformatories. And it was, it was segregated. So there was the white kids on one side and the black kids on the other side. And the warden is, in a magical realist, realism way, is he's a very, very bad, evil human being. And the little boy has this unit, is actually, 
his sister does as well, and so did his mother. They have the ability to see to the other side. And so, as you can imagine, with many, many, many unexplained, even unacknowledged deaths in this reformatory, there's lots of what they call haints. And so when the warden finds out that the little boy can see haints, he sets them up to trap them. And what it does is rather than help them move on to the next world, it destroys their spirit, kills them permanently. Mm. It's a fantastic book. She's a wonderful writer. She's been around forever. I feel like in a way we were sort of writing at the same time. In fact, she blurbed on my third novel, The Dwelling, and she wrote uh, The Good House. She's an incredible supernatural writer. <laughs> Love all her stuff, but that's her new one. Mm. It just came out for Christmas, I think. Maybe mm. last late fall. Nice. Fantastic. Nice the Reformatory by Tanana Reevedu. Were you going to do that one too, Trevor? I, no, I was not. Oh. No, but I, I made a note of it. So uh, no, that's great. I, the, the book I picked, I was kind of leaning into the post-apocalyptic thing, and the book I picked was Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And uh, I don't think we've read this on the podcast, but I think we've, I know Toby, you and I have read her books and Dennis, I'm not sure if you. No, I had started a few pages into it, but I never did continue. And it's one of those I mean to get back to, but have not yet. What I, just like Moon of the Crested Snow, I feel like it's a book that's almost a more of a sketch than a full chronicle. It's not Stephen King's The Stand, but she covers a lot of ground in the short book where there's a, a flu, a super flu called the Georgia flu, wipes out North America or the world, and it follows a number of characters who, we first meet them on like the last normal night kind of thing, and then we meet them again 20 years later, and then it kind of goes back and forth in time. And uh, the interesting thing with her writing, I find, is that she's written a lot of, other books that I wouldn't call sequels, but they are all kind of connected in, in an interesting way. There'll be a very minor character in one book that becomes the main character in another book, or there'll be a location that's mentioned in one book that becomes the main location. And But I think the starting point would be Station Eleven. So that's my recommendation. I love that. Yes. Yeah, Having these worlds that you live within, right? I, I find that wonderful when you're reading a book and you realize, oh my gosh, yeah, that person's also from Castle Rock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I love that book. And the um, the TV show based on the book is also excellent, okay, if you haven't no. seen it. I haven't seen it. So I really wanted to recommend The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimmeline because the similarities, there's a lot of similarities. It's a post-apocalyptic novel told through an indigenous lens. It takes place in the bush. But I have recommended that one already. So if you haven't read it, read it. But I'm going to recommend a different book called I Who Have Never Known Men um, by Jacqueline Hartman. And this is a book in translation. Um, it's an older book. It's from 1995. But for some reason, it has had a bit of a resurgence in popularity. So it is also post-apocalyptic dystopian. It's about this young woman who lives underground in a cage with 39 other women. And there are these guards who, you know, provide them food, but sort of look over them, but don't talk. And just like turning leaves and crusted snow, you know, you don't know what's happened to the outside world. The older women who are with uh, the protagonist, they have vague memories of the world before, but no one's really sure what happened or what happened to their family or their friends. And then something changes. And I'm going to stop there because I don't want to give too much away. But it is, it's a small book, but it's so compelling, so interesting, but extremely bleak, extremely bleak. So you have to be in the right headspace for it. But it is excellent. I Who Have Never Known Men by Jacqueline Hartman. Mm. Nice. I am unprepared for this segment. I just finished reading the book yesterday and I didn't have any good reference in my mind. Uh, so I'm going to go with a really obvious one, The Stand by Stephen King, yes. because it's uh, one of the first big post-apocalyptic books I ever read. They've done treatments of it in the past, that uh, like a longish TV movie, which I actually kind of enjoyed, which featured Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as a person talking about uh, with a sign saying the end of the world is coming. Something Monster like shouter. <laughs> it's a really good book if you like Stephen King or horror he said when he started writing it, he was just feeling very bleak about humanity, and then by the end of it, he was feeling better. So it's worth reading. The other thing I'll recommend is there was a movie I found 
online some years ago called Turbo Kid, which is a post-apocalyptic movie, which has a very cheesy 80s type style to it. Uh, it was made in 2015, but it you know has some of that retro stuff, has a great soundtrack. And uh, one of the things I liked is that unlike in a lot of other post-apocalyptic stuff where everyone still somehow manages to have oil and vehicles and things like that, everyone's riding bicycles because that's the only way they could get around with any speed. And it has Michael Ironside in it. So he's always worth watching. Anyways, those are my recommendations. The Stand by Stephen King and Turbo Kid. And I think you can find that streaming on a few different services. Can I just add a note about Stephen King? Mm -hmm. He dresses his characters really horribly. And he usually just describes the women's outfits. Trevor um, loves Stephen King, by the way. Oh, I do as well. I love him. <laughs> he is, he's the goat. Mm. But I was for a while keeping track of outfits he put on women as a form of protest. Mm. Yes, a yellow striped blouse with red pants is one that comes to mind. And I, <laughs> right? <pants>. Right? <laughs> that is an abomination against God. And that was in uh, Cujo. And he, the husband in Cujo, admired this outfit on his wife. So Tabby, do some checking <laughs> up on him. Yeah. Or send it to me. I will correct these sartorial <laughs> mistakes. You know, in fairness to Stephen King, I think he was probably full of drugs and alcohol when he wrote Cujo. So he may not be responsible for... Well, someone's responsible for that outfit. <laughs> there, there are editors. I think Susie is saying that there needs yeah, to be a special editor Yeah, you guys, somebody's got it. Yeah. Let's yeah. get a fashion edit pass on this, please, next book. Thank you. It's all uh, I'm asking. And ruffles. A, There's often ruffles. Nothing um, wrong with ruffles, very feminine. but not mm. the way that he puts them on things. Yeah. We made Toby read uh, Billy Summers by Stephen King for the podcast <laughs> oh, last year. So. I haven't read that. That's a baseball one? No. Uh, no, it's no. by a hitman. Yeah, oh, it's, yes. Yeah. Not really, it's not horror. It's like no. A, no, it's not. Yeah. One last job kind of. Yeah, the one yeah. last job and then I'm out kind of um, you know, trope. My most recent favorite was 1163. What was it? That one's so good. 11, yeah. uh, 11, 22, 1375. Yes. That one is fantastic. It is. Yeah. He could have named it something easier, though. Yeah. So with our book recs out of the way. <laughs> um, and a caution. Our next segment is uh, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein we opine on various words that we like for whatever reason. So who's got a word they would like to share with us? Yes, Love Honor? I do. Yes. Um, so I have a couple, actually. But uh, one that I have rediscovered, I used to say it many years ago and didn't use it as much, but for whatever reason, it just popped into my mind a few months ago, and I use it all the time, and it's cattywampus. Hmm. And it means exactly what it sounds like. It's like things going askew, right, and not quite working out. But the word that has never left me since I heard it when I was a kid with shenanigans. Mm -hmm. Love me some shenanigans. But Cattywampus is the new one. There used to be a, a news group on Usenet back in the day called Alt Shenanigans, and it was all about playing little pranks and things. Oh, I used to read that group religiously. Shenanigans actually uh, really means to, yeah, to pull to pull tricks. Yeah. You know, like if, if you call shenanigans, it meant you thought somebody was cheating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the theme of the group was that it had to be a prank that was, that people would laugh at afterwards that they wouldn't be like, uh, <laughs> oh, hurt by. And it couldn't, it couldn't be too mean, you know, then it wasn't a shenanigans anymore. That's right. And it was, then it's violence. Yeah. Yes. So it was an interesting group. <laughs> My word this month is I'm sort of inspired by the book in that there was a lot of walking going on in the book. There's lots of uh, foot traffic. And uh, so there's an archaic word for someone that is a foot traveler and who carries a wallet, and they're called a walleteer. <laughs> and I thought that would also tie into Dennis and I. We kind of have this ongoing kind of thing that we're, we're fascinated with what people carry in their pockets, the everyday carry kind of movement. So women can't play along because we don't get pockets. It, no, no, it's well, everyday carry, so whatever you happen to carry it with It could be you. in a purse could or a backpack, but you're right. You are definitely pocket deficit. But uh, I also thought it would be a great name for like a podcast on everyday carry, wouldn't it? The Walleteer. <laughs> Sounds like a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my Here he word. is, he's the Walleteer. <laughs> I'll save you with money in my wallet. <laughs> yeah. here, here that would save go. me. Yeah. <laughs> like that. 
So in prep for today, I was watching the recording of Rice's book event here at McNally Robinson, where he was interviewed by Rosanna Deerchild. And he brought up the concept of wonderworks, um, which is something I'd never heard of before. And it's a term coined by an academic named Daniel Heath Justice. He is an American-born Canadian and citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And he coined the term wonderworks as a way to refer to speculative fiction written by indigenous and black authors. So instead of using the word speculative, which is almost scientific, like you're proving a hypothesis, um, wonderworks is about wonder, wondering about the future. I read an article by him. It's called Indigenous Wonderworks and the Settler Colonial Imaginary, where he gets into all of this. And he's an academic, so it's full of words like monolithic reality and rationalist supremacy and epistemology. But I just thought it was an interesting concept and an interesting, interesting word. So that mm -hmm. is Wonderworks. I love that. Yeah. yeah. That is a good word. I'm going to start using it now. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's actually what Tanana Reeve Do's book would be is Wonder Works, mm. Black Author, mm -hmm. mm. Magical Realism. Sure. Yeah. My word for this month is the, which we have a, a big work of art in the Millennium Library called The Instantiation, which is on the first floor at the base of the Grand Staircase, which is the three letters of the word the, T H and E, arranged artistically. But the particular version of the that I'm referring to, I saw on a post on Mastodon recently. In my quick search, I couldn't find another reference to this, so I don't have a better source than this post on Mastodon, which is not the most uh, you know authoritative type thing. But anyway, the author of the post, Hal Sawyer, was saying that his favorite relic English term that was still used was the, used in phrases like, the more I look at this, the stranger it seems, or the bigger they come, the harder they fall. This the is not an article of any noun. It's a different word. And it descended from the Old English. Uh, it's got a spelling here that I don't recognize, but it was pronounced the, which means either when or then. So back in early Middle English, the structure if-then had not really taken over. And if you wanted to express an if-then relationship, you would say the whatever, the whatever. So when such and such, then such and such. And it sounds almost the same as the, and the spelling of the two converged, but the meaning remained separate. So then we have phrases like the more the merrier, which means when there's more, then it's merrier. So yeah, it's just an interesting little sub-usage of the most common word in the English language. I and I just that. thought that was really interesting. That is. That's inc I had no idea. Neither I don't think did I, I even really thought about it. No, it's yeah. just one of those phrases you accept as a as a colloquialism as this is just how we say it, you know, but then it's like, oh, okay, it it's actually a different word, but it just got merged. <laughs> but we hmm. still use it that way. Um so yeah, there is English for you. It just takes pieces and pieces from everywhere and mashes them together pick you're so smart uh that guy on the internet is yeah <laughs> what is it against inedis how did you say your name inedis edna is this if you say if you say it backwards it's sinned sinned yeah. Oh. yeah love it yeah naming my children sinned unless you only spell it with one end then it's signed and it's much more mathematical or yes, musical it is. <laughs> So uh, I'm thinking of just spelling it with one N again. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. So thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. And Susie Maloney, our writer in residence. Thank you. I had such a good time. We really enjoyed having you here. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. Somewhere in South America, at the home of the country's vice president, a lavish birthday party is being held in honor of a powerful businessman, Mr. Hosokawa. Roxanne Koss, opera's most revered soprano, has mesmerized the international guests with her singing. It is a perfect evening until a band of gun-wielding terrorists takes the entire party hostage. But what begins as a panicked, life-threatening scenario slowly evolves into something quite different. A moment of great beauty, as terrorists and hostages forge unexpected bonds and people from different continents become compatriots, intimate friends, and lovers. 
Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service. Maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to read. Read. a guest or something have me on again (laughs) i read constantly um somebody dies you know (laughs) (laughs) that might happen then we're going to start worrying that you're going to be stalking the other guests on this i never said that no one said that no one said that dennis no and this isn't being recorded and won't be used as evidence later in court (laughs) there you go and i deny it anyway (laughs) 